0: Today's lesson was recorded on October 5th, 2021, and this is the third in our weekly Bible study on the book of Matthew. Today's lesson, we tackle a particularly difficult verse to interpret, and it's Matthew 517. This is where Jesus uses the words to abolish and fulfill when he's talking about the law or the Torah, as we would call it, and of course, the prophets as well. So we're going to explore what it means to either abolish or fulfill the Torah, and then we're going to compare it to rabbinic writings that use the same phrasing when talking about interpreting the Torah. And I think what you'll see is as we compare it to writings that are close to that day and represent the rabbinic mind of the first century, that something starts to take shape. The meaning of the phrase begins to take shape, and I think you'll see that. So make sure you head over to our website, figtreeteaching.com. You can find the class handout that'll help you follow along. Now we post these videos on YouTube and then we have them in podcast form on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And since repetition is the mother of all teaching, one thing that's good to do is when you sit down and go through this lesson one time is to eventually go back and review it a few days later, after the information has had a chance to digest. You'll always hear something that you didn't hear the first time. It's very similar to watching a movie the second or third time and seeing things that you didn't see the first time. So make sure you check out all the different formats that we have this class. So we hope you enjoy this Bible study through the book of Matthew, and that it blesses you, and that it can help you see just how deep the Scripture is. So as we take a look at the scripture through the cultural lens of the first century and first century Judaism, we always see things that we didn't notice before, and usually when we see them, there's something quite powerful and solidifying to our faith when we pick those up. So we hope you enjoy today's lesson on Abolish and Fulfill. Just say a a quick prayer. Just to lead us into this time, we're going to open up God's Word. God, we invite the full force of your goodness, your truth, your healing and peace into this class, into this evening as we look at your Word and the depth of your Word. And God, that you would help us to understand more clearly and more deeply what Jesus is telling us. Thank you, God, for all the materials that we can study to understand your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. The main topic tonight, what I really want you to walk away from tonight, is the words abolish and fulfill, and what they meant to the first century rabbinic mind, which Jesus and Matthew are squarely in. They're critical to understanding the rest of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So it's going to be abolish and fulfill, although we're going to stick a whole bunch of other stuff in there, because it's all crammed into these few verses. So this is going to be week three of Matthew. Let me get my clicker to go. Week three. Of course, I'm leaving the picture of the synagogue because we're, it's, I want to take us back, travel back in our mind to that first century synagogue rabbi-disciple model and that rabbinic mind to say, how are they speaking about the text, God's words, God's will, and see if we can understand the words that Matthew is putting on the page because he's definitely not explaining it to us. He doesn't stop to explain anything. Okay, so if you have your Bible, you can turn it to Matthew 5, 17-20, again, looking at abolish and fulfill. Quick review, just talking about the rabbinic mind. We did the genealogy, but I wanted to bring, bring the genealogy from the rabbinic perspective, to say, look, we've got writings out there that we can compare to our New Testament, and you'll find uh, a lot of similarities. We're going to do the same thing tonight. So, Matthew is the most Hebraic or rabbinic. He doesn't stop to explain things. He assumes you know what he's talking about. Two, many of our church fathers, Papias, Origen, Eusebius, all mention that it was originally written in the language of Palestine in that day, whether that's Hebrew or Aramaic, Many people argue Hebrew, other people argue Aramaic. The point is, it's not Greek. So, somebody had to come along and translate the Hebrew into Greek, and there you just lose a whole bunch of the meaning that may be carried along in that original text. And then, we mentioned last week, you have a whole bunch of rabbinic interpretation techniques. I'll try to show you as many as I can as we're going through Matthew, but Jesus uses them, Paul uses them. Matthew uses them. We're just not used to them. And so, in a way, what we have to do is enter this rabbinic mind. It's, the, it's all of the thought that's going on around the text. Now, this is a little bit different than culture, because the culture can be anybody who lives in the land, it, and they have different ways of speaking about things culturally, no matter what religion you are. But then you get rabbi, rabbinic, where the rabbis are trying to interpret God's words and boy, you enter a whole other world, and of course, Jesus is squarely in that world, so they get what he's saying. And in that rabbinic mind, abolish and fulfill. So, uh, these words take on what we call a technical meaning when the rabbis use it. So, when Jesus starts off what we're going to look at tonight, do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And Paul does the same thing. I'll point it out on your sheet when we get there. Okay, so chapter 5, we'll go to verse 17 to 20 in a minute. Just one little note, because we're, we're starting out a little bit further down in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what's the problem with using the word sermon? What do we think of in our modern context? Well, we think of a sermon, the pastor on Sunday standing up. So when we use the phrase, Sermon on the Mount, it becomes a bit westernized. And I'll show you why in a, in a minute, what I think we should probably call it. I don't want to try to rehash the entire Sermon on the Mount, but it's important to notice how this chapter begins. And the Sermon on the Mount, or what's going to take place, is goes over chapter 5, 6, and 7. So it's a lengthy. I mentioned a few weeks ago, two weeks ago now, that Matthew's gospel, uh, more than any other ones, shows parallels of Jesus and Moses. So, in Moses' day, there was a king who became concerned and wanted to put the babies to death. In Jesus' day, there's a king who becomes concerned and puts the babies to death. Moses is saved out of that. Jesus is delivered out of that. Moses goes down to Egypt. Jesus, Joseph, and Mary go down to Egypt, and so you get coming out of Egypt again. Moses writes five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Matthew, by the way, writes his gospel. There's five discourses from Jesus. Five lengthy discourses. Now, why would you assume that Matthew chose five, and the Sermon on the Mount is the first one? So just like there's five books, there's five discourses in Matthew. Moses delivers a covenant. Jesus delivers a covenant. So he's intending you to see Moses in many of the things that are going on in the gospel. So instead of the Sermon on the Mount, I would call it, more like Moses, the teaching on the mountain. Now it's important. The mountain. Why? Because that's what that's the words that, that Matthew uses. I'll show you my NIV. I love my NIV. And then they put, Jesus went up on a mountainside. It's not what it says. It says he went up on the mountain. Well, why is he using the phrase the mountain? Moses, the great teacher of Israel. Moshi Robbenu. Moses, our teacher. He's going up on a mountain to teach. That's what Moses does. And so the whole thing is to try to get, because that first century mind, Moses was everything. And so now it's it's like describing the next, you know, in Deuteronomy, God says, I'm gonna send a prophet who's just like Moses. Listen to him. So he's if he's just like Moses, Matthew tells us that, but he does it in first century Judaism language. Okay, so he went up on the mountain to teach. Now, if you look at verse one, if you have your Bible open to Matthew 5, look at verse 1. And what I want you to think is when you envision the Sermon on the Mount or the Teaching on the Mountain, whatever you think, how many people are there? Like, what comes to mind? And then we are got to look at what the text says, right? Because sometimes Hollywood intrudes into what we think is happening. So it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, so it seems he sees the crowds and he leaves. He went up on, well, this is the NIV, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Well, who comes to him? His disciples. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So it looks like the whole thing is starting out with the disciples. Jesus is teaching the disciples. Now, eventually, when you get to the end of everything in chapter seven, it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching. So clearly, people must have shown up. But the point I want you to see is he's teaching his disciples, he's going to teach them as the rabbi would sit down and teach the disciples. Okay, uh, let me just show you one other, the the ESV, I pulled the ESV. He went up on the mountain. And again, I don't want to harp on little details like that, but it's so important when we read that these details at least pop up. That's what Matthew wants you to see, is something is going on, and the mountain is part of that. So, we're in this long discourse called... Whatever you want to call it, Sermon on the Mount, Teaching on the Mountain, either way, Jesus is going to be teaching us. All right, so number two, that's just a brief beginning. Again, we're so limited on time, and there's so much in there about the Sermon on the Mount. These verses that we're going to read are critical to, the sermon on, to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, the Teaching on the Mountain. If we misread these, then what comes after it? can be misapplied. And so we want to make sure these are like the turning point phrases that go into the teachings. So what I want to do, number two on your handout, is we're going to work with some words tonight and try to understand what they meant in the first century. So I've got them on your handout for you to refer to, and I'm kind of going to go quickly because we'll rehash them over time. We'll start with a discussion of Torah. Now, in Jesus' day, Torah, by the time it gets translated to Greek, they use the word for law, and that's unfortunate, because law has a negative connotation, Uh, maybe feels oppressive, same with commandment, has a negative feeling to it. But Torah doesn't really mean law as much as it means to teach, to guide, to instruct. Not just a simple, not a list of rules to be followed. God is not despotic. He's not authoritarian. He's giving you a guidebook. Um, I like to think of it as when you create an automobile, you put a little owner's manual in there. Tells you how to operate the car. 65 miles an hour is the best gas. Don't go around turns too quickly. Keep the tire pressure. This is how you want to maintain the car. Change the oil every once in a while. God creates human beings and gives us a a guidebook, a manual, an instruction manual for how to live. And that's how Jesus and his audience looked at the Torah. We look differently at it often through the lens of our New Testament, but okay, so that's Torah. We'll talk more about that. Abolish and fulfill. These two words are the most important ones. And because they're used by the rabbis in a different way than what we think they actually mean, and it concerns is interpretation of the torah how do you interpret the torah if you interpret it correctly you fulfill the torah if you interpret it incorrectly you abolish the torah so this whole thing and what we're going to watch is jesus interpreting his bible and he's going to say look i'm here to interpret properly apparently someone must have been criticizing him um one book This is really the scholar who has brought this to light. David Flusser, back in the 60s, began writing a lot about these phrases and their use in rabbinic um, rabbinic writings or in rabbinic discourse. This book, Judaism and the Origins of Christianity, it's out of print now, and it's pretty expensive if you want to buy it used. Kindle looks a little bit, uh, price is better. It's a very detailed book. Uh, but but I just wanted to show you, there's a whole chapter on this in this book, and David Flusser is really the, he's an Orthodox Jewish, well, he passed away a few years ago, but he was a professor at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Orthodox Jewish, but he was a professor of Second Temple period. And he would teach the Christian students and say, here, let me help you understand uh, what Jesus is saying better. You can see it over here. This is what it means over here. I mean, he he knew his New Testament better than all of us. and. uh Really an amazing teacher, and so we get a lot from David Flusser. As he points out, these words, abolish, fulfill, have to do with interpretation. How do we interpret Torah? All right, then Jesus is going to mention something about greater and lesser. You have minor commandments and heavier commandments. Well, lighter and heavier, lesser and greater. And you want to honor the lesser commandments so it doesn't lead to a greater commandment. For instance, he says, you've heard it say, don't murder. I tell you, don't hate. Or don't be angry. Because what does anger, what can anger lead to? Murder. Don't be angry. That's the lesser commandment. Honor that one, and it won't lead you down the path to a greater commandment. So we'll see him using that, lesser and greater. He also mentions the smallest letter. He says, the smallest letter will not pass away. The smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet is a yod, like Y. I have a yod up there. It's this little dot right here. That's a yod. So we're going to see this in the story with Solomon. There's a yod that goes to complain to God that Solomon's not interpreting the text properly. Which is, it's just a little delightful story. Uh, and then, of course, the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about this. The reason I started out Matthew with the kingdom of heaven and trying to talk about the present reality is because when we see this today we're going to see the kingdom of heaven used not in the future ultimate salvation sense but are you manifesting god's reign right now well if you don't interpret properly interpret the torah how can you manifest god's reign in the present so it's going to be about god's reign in the present not as much about the ultimate salvation in the future that's, that's why it's so important to take that look at uh, the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is what we're going to look at. Let's go uh, now switch to, if you go in your Bible, we're just going to read it. And all of these things, what I just put on your list, God willing, will will pop out. And then we'll talk about how we can understand what what's going on. So starting with verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish, there's our word abolish, Do not think I have come to abolish Torah, or the law, and now he includes the prophets because he's like a Pharisee, he's extending out their interpretation. Do not think I have come to abolish the Torah, or the prophets, I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. So we have abolish and fulfill go together. Next. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, there's the Yod. That's our Yod we're going to talk about later. Not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside the least of these commands, and by the way, teaches others accordingly, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's doing a little play on words there. And whoever practices and teaches these commands, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's the greater part of it. Okay, then he finishes up in verse 20, and this is one of the hardest ones for us. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, right there, I don't think he's talking about ultimate salvation. He's talking about Bringing the reign of God here right now, entering as we uh, exist in the present. Because clearly we know that we don't live up to that righteousness, and yet we're saved by faith, by the grace of God. So, Okay, so that's it. Now let's go through and talk, just to, to highlight a couple of the things that are likely going on here, and so we can get a better understanding of it. So the first one is Torah. This is number three on your handout. What does that word mean? Now, it gets translated law. It's a bad translation. Everybody will tell you that. So Torah, it means to teach, to instruct, to guide. And this is where, I'm, where I was saying earlier, God gives us an instruction manual for humanity. It's not just a list of rules. It's a guidebook for us to travel with. The word Torah comes from a word Yara. You don't really need to know this, but it's fun. Every Hebrew word has a verb at it, as its root. Hebrew is very action-oriented. The root words are from verbs. So Yara begins with a yod. So we'll, we, we have another yod, not that that matters. But Yara is like an archery term. It means to throw or shoot, like an arrow. So, if God is giving you Torah, which comes from Yara, to shoot like an arrow, he's giving you a teaching that is straight and true, like a flight of an arrow. So, the Torah has got the force and the, and the straightness of an arrow flying through the air. And if it's God shooting it, then it's divinely precise, right? So, it's a different way of thinking about, rather than, oh, I got a list of rules to follow, No, no, no. These are teachings that are going to keep us on the path of humanity, keep humanity on its path. And when properly interpreted, because you can misinterpret the Torah, when properly interpreted, it becomes a guide for successful living. How do we live as an individual? How do we live in community? How do we live in a society where the presence of God can dwell with us? That's the end of Exodus. The presence of God dwelt intensely with the people. That's what God wants to be. He wants heaven to come down to earth and dwell with us. So it's a, it's a type of guide for successful living. That's Torah. It's much more guiding than law. Now, now that, I think, just that should change something for us as we think about w- what, what this means, you know, because the word law, again, has so much heavy, has a heavier connotation to it. Okay, let me give you a, I I drew this picture out on your handout, and I want to give you just a visualization of how I think about Torah and the dynamic nature of it. Because too often we think of Torah or the law as a list of commands, like it's just a flat, you know, it's just, here's the list, go, go follow them. But that's not really how it works. And the only thing that came to mind was something like a pyramid. So the Torah is like a pyramid of, of commands. And there's, by the way, 613 commands. That's by the most people's count. 365 of them are negative, and the rest are positive. So there's 613 commands, and they have a very dynamic interaction with each other that then causes you to move in a certain direction, causes human beings to move in a certain direction. That's what we want. Is that guidance. And then something that's really important is it's not static. And in Jesus' day, they never thought of the Torah as being static, that you go back to following rigidly these rules. What they do is when you understand the totality of of the Torah as it kind of flows out the top of that that pyramid, you come up with guiding principles because the world is always changing around us. The world of The Exodus is different than the world in the first century is different from the world today. And so what we need to do is, as we study Torah, we build guiding principles that can be applied then. It's like case law or something, can be applied to different situations that might not have been the same situations as they had back then. So it's much more dynamic, even in Jesus' day. And one thing that's very important for us to note about this, is they recognize there are greater commands. There are commands, Jesus uses the term, you ignore the weightier commands of the of the Torah, the, the, the ones that are more important. So, question, right here at the very top of that pyramid, what's the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And nobody disagreed with that. Everybody knew that the top command was to to love God. It's the next ones that, you know, start to get where people start to waver. And we'll talk about the Jesus response to that in a few weeks. But the greatest command, so there's a command at the top. Don't violate that command. Well, then that means there's lesser commands, right? So a lesser command might be one down here on the base. And I know we mentioned this like a, a year and a half ago in our class, but does anyone know what the least command is? Do not move a mother bird off the nest. It's Deuteronomy 22.6, and that's what the rabbis would argue is the least of all the commands. Now, is it still important for us to be in, you know, in harmony with nature? Well, to some extent, yes. So you don't throw it away, it just means that there's a, they recognize there's differences between the commandments. Okay, finally, I mentioned, out of all of that, you want to build guiding principles, and these guiding principles are going to move us to the future, where not all of those situations are going to apply. So one of the guiding principles that I'll show you in a minute, very important, was to save a human life. Now, there's no commandment, you shall save a human life, but you have all the commands, the totality of all those commandments, and the image of God, and reading the stories in, in Torah tell you that to save a human life is one of the most important things. So, we'll see this in a minute, but a lot of these I- ideas are going to enter our New Testament discussion about commandments, which ones do we prefer, saving a human life. Hopefully that gives you a little bit, well, the Torah is more dynamic than we often give it credit for, because we just don't, we don't engage it the same way that Jesus in his day would have. So, okay, now let's move. That's Torah. That's all the commandments. And now we're going to move to abolish and fulfill. I've already told you, we've, they're, they're phrases that are used by the rabbis, right? Now, when we, in our Western mindset, we tend to focus on this word, fulfill. And we forget that he's using these words in tandem, right? And one thing that may throw us off in Matthew is Matthew has all these fulfillment texts. And so we tend to in lump this in. Oh, Jesus fulfills the Torah, therefore take that scroll, set it over there against the tree because we don't need it anymore. We've got the new business going on. And so our Western tendency is to see that word fulfilled as being, now that Jesus is here, we don't need that. And that's a very old idea, dating back to even the very early 2nd century. Uh, There was a fellow by the name of Marcion who tried to get rid of the Old Testament, say we didn't need it anymore. So it's a very common thought. Hey, you don't need that Old Testament. Jesus is here. Get on with the new business. In fact, let me show you a recent controversy if you guys aren't aware of this you might know the pastor his name is Andy Stanley Andy Stanley wrote a book that was quite controversial because as this one says Jesus ended the Old Testament covenant once and for all and what he told his church was we need to unhitch from the Old Testament we don't need it anymore and of course this all the Old Testament scholars you know, threw their hands up in the air. Like, how could you say that? We can't understand the New Testament without the Old. But this is a very normal way people think about it. And it created it created uh, quite a fit from people, especially in the last 10 years, there's been an increase in Christian interest in studying the Torah. As the Torah, like, studying the Old Testament and all the commands. More and more people are like, "This makes more sense to me, so there's some there's something moving, and then for Andy Stanley to come out so publicly and say, "Nope, we don't need it anymore was really uh well it just threw people into a fit anyways, because is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying, Hey, we can get rid of this? No, not at all. He doesn't want you to get rid of the Torah. He wants you to interpret it correctly. that's the idea so If we look at these two, or we look at abolish and fulfill, and this is where it gets tough. These are technical rabbinic words, and technical word is a word that has an original meaning, and then we use it differently than its original meaning. So, for instance, in the Old Testament, the word salvation, Old Testament salvation has the idea of freedom, space, liberty. It's more about lifting off the weights of oppression or whatever is oppressing you, and giving you back the freedom. That's Old Testament. But now how do we use the term salvation? Right? If, you, if I say, "Are you saved?" I'm asking, "Are you in a relationship with God that gets you to go to heaven one day?" There were many people think that. So it's taken on a technical meaning, meaning it takes on a meaning different than it originally was. These are technical rabbinic words. And again they have to do with how do you interpret scripture? So two rabbis talking, one person gives an interpretation of a scripture and the other one disagrees, says no that's wrong. He would say to him you just abolished the Torah. That's the term they use. If you interpret script the idea of abolish, to interpret scripture incorrectly so that if someone followed you that they would violate God's will what God what he really intended for us so that's what abolish means i did not come to abolish jesus says i did not come to interpret scripture incorrectly so that you would then violate God's will no i came to fulfill and fulfill means you interpret scripture correctly if you interpret scripture correctly And then everybody follows it. They play it out in their life. You're in God's will. The reason this is so important is because what's going to follow over the next two chapters is all Torah interpretation. And Jesus is telling you up front, I'm interpreting this correctly so that you can be in the kingdom of God by obeying it. So he, like, for instance, you know, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's true. That's a commandment. But I tell you, and now he's going to the greater principle, don't lust, because what does lust lead to? Right? There's never been an adulterous affair that didn't begin with lust. Period. They don't just happen by accident, right? Affairs happen because there's interactions that build up and build up and build up till suddenly the affair happens. So, it never begins simply with something that, you know, accidental. So that's what he's doing. He's uh He's bringing in greater principles. I think I've beat that enough, but we'll see, it. we'll see it when we look at the example of Solomon and the Yod that gets so upset because it's, it's how Solomon is interpreting scripture. And the Yod is saying he's abolishing scripture, he's, abol- he's abolishing the Torah. Okay, so let me give you one real world example from Jesus, okay? Because this helps us understand the dynamic nature. Of what's going on, and then how he's interpreting the text. So, let me just ask a couple questions here. Is it true that God gives a command to keep the Sabbath? Would you all agree? So, God gives a command to keep the Sabbath. It's a very important command, so it's probably somewhere at the top. God also gives a command, I think you would agree, to circumcise on the eighth day. That's also a very important command. That identifies you as part of uh, Abraham's people. So what happens if a boy is born on a Friday and the eighth day is a Sabbath day? Which command is more important? Which command becomes greater in that moment? And so you're engaging the moment and the text, and the totality of all that Torah means, to come up with an answer. Okay, so that's going to be our question. You also have, then, the guiding principles to save a human life. This is going to come into the Jesus story. Nowhere does it says. nowhere does it say, that was good English, nowhere does it say, you shall save a human life, but that's the principle. So turn, if you would, to John, I'm going to have you turn out of Matthew, Turn to John 7, 21-24, and we're going to watch Jesus' dialogue with the religious leaders. And this is what they're dialoguing about. How do you correctly interpret not just each commandment, but the totality of Torah that leads to these, call it the spirit of the law. What does the spirit of the law say? Then act on the spirit of the law. So John 7, 21-24. So, Jesus says to them, I did one miracle, and you're amazed. Yet, because Moses gave you circumcision, so there's circumcision, and then John puts in parentheses, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs. So, yet Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. So, which which commandment are they placing higher in that moment? is to circumcise the boy on the Sabbath. That's the more important command on that moment. And then Jesus says this, Now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath day? Ah, now we get what they're upset about. He's pulling the principle to save a human life, and they're saying, no, 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 you should keep the Sabbath. And his response to them would be, you just abolish Torah. You're missing the point of the Torah. So then verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Interpret your Torah correctly. You're missing the point here, folks. You do it. You break the Torah when it's convenient to you. But now you don't want to do it when it comes to saving a human life. This is where the engagement is. How do you interpret Torah? So you go back to this image and again, if someone said, "Hey, the Sabbath is more important than a human life," Jesus would say, "No, it is not. You're missing the point. right? You abolish Torah. If you said Jesus, it is, it is important or a human life is more important than the Sabbath, right? So can, are you allowed to pick grain on the Sabbath day if you're hungry to save a human life? Okay, hopefully that helps, of what Jesus' dialogue is. He's trying to get them engaged into their Bible, not throw it away. All right, one more point, and then we'll get to the fun little story. God willing, we'll cover this a little bit more later. It's the breaking of lesser commands. There's lesser and greater commands. Jesus wants you to obey them all. If given a choice, go for the greater one. He says what it, what's going to follow this dialogue is, is that if you don't obey the lesser commands, that transgression may lead to a greater command. And this is all over the rabbinic material. It's in some of our early Christian writings, um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So what follows this is a lesser command, as I've mentioned earlier, anger. Don't be angry. Why? Because anger leads to murder. Or lust is the is the lesser of the command. Don't lust. Why? Because one day you might find yourself in adultery, and now you've really gone too far. Paul does the same thing. There's often the phrase, how much more important? Paul will say, if this, then how much more important is this? How much more important? That makes something heavier. That's the phrase they use. And you'll find that all over the New Testament. Okay, now let's try to wrap this up in one little kind of funny story about Solomon. And again, this, the reason we bring this up is because you're going to find in this little rabbinic story that's in, it's in the Talmud, rabbinic writings, you're going to find the same characteristics of what Jesus just said. Lesser and greater, abolishing Torah by interpretation. No letters are going to pass away from the Torah. It's all in the same story. So he's, he's clearly drawing from common stories that are in, his, in that milieu. So Solomon, of course, is a king. The king is not above the law. The Torah still applies to the king. So in Deuteronomy, there are a couple commandments that are only for the king. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, the first one, well, this is actually, sorry, not the first one. Uh, Deuteronomy 17.18, it says that when the king takes his throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself a copy of the Torah. He's supposed to write it himself. Why? Because as the king, you need to know the Torah. You need to know how to administer justice. So you're going to write it out by hand. You get it from the Levitical priests. But you're going to write it out by hand. So we assume at some point Solomon writes out his own Torah scroll. Then, one verse before that, verse 17, it says, You must not take horses, then you must not take many wives, or your heart will be led astray, and the king must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. Well, what did Solomon do? All three. Yeah, he had chariots and horses, he had many wives, and he had tons of gold. So, in fact, at one point in the Bible, it says someone he had, he had exactly 666 talents of gold. Think about what the writer thinks about Solomon's gold by using those numbers. Um, okay, so Solomon breaks them all. The word for to take many, or accumulate, is yarbeh. And it begins with a yod. Now, that little yod, according to this rabbinic story, is going to get upset at Solomon. And, the, and that little yod right there is going to ascend to God and complain. Now, it's, it's a made-up story. It's like a parable of sorts. So, here's how it goes. Solomon is the king. He took many wives. He took lots of gold. He took the horses, right? But he said to himself, while interpreting these commands, What? This is going to lead my heart astray? No, it won't lead my heart astray. I will take many wives, and my heart won't go astray. But of course, that's exactly what happened, is he breaks all those commands, and he's led astray. So the rabbis tell this story. So it says, our rabbis say, At that time, the yod of the word yarbeh, which is to multiply, went up on high and prostrated itself before God. He said, Master of the universe, have you not said that no letter shall ever be abolished from the Torah? Behold, Solomon has now arisen and abolished one. Who knows? Today he has abolished one letter. Tomorrow he will abolish another letter. Until the whole of Torah is nullified. Then God responded, Solomon and a thousand like him will pass away, but the smallest tittle will not be canceled from you. Now, it's a great little story that the Yod complains to God, I love it, about the fact that Solomon misinterpreted the text, or interpreted it under his own wisdom. But think of that story compared to what Jesus is now saying. Proper interpretation of the text means that the text is not abolished. So we get the word abolish all over the place in this uh, story. You also get the idea of nothing passes away. The smallest little tittle, God says, will not be canceled from you. So the story is great because it illustrates what Jesus is saying. And it's just kind of a fanciful little saying. There's a couple places you can find that. told. In variant of different ways. This one comes from, and I'll put the book up there, Jesus the Jewish Theologian by Brad Young. And he goes through this whole idea of the. Now he was a student of David Flusser, the first book I put up, so, but he does go through extensively talking about fulfill and abolish, and then shares that little story, which you can find other places as well. Uh, and I put a I put a footnote on your Handout of another place. You'll see the yod going up to heaven, complaining. So, in review, because we're we're wrapping this up, it's so important for us to understand Torah, not law, as much as teaching or to guide. Then Torah is dynamic; it works like a um, pyramid. It's going to force us to go in a certain direction, or at least guide us in a certain direction. Then these two words, abolish and fulfill, so important to understand what Jesus is saying. I did not come to incorrectly interpret the Torah. I came to interpret it correctly so that you can see how then to manifest it in the world. Uh, By the way, Romans 3.31, Paul says the same thing about faith. Faith fulfills the Torah. He uses, it's uh, the same word that means to make stand. So Paul uses the same dialogue, it just looks a little bit different in Romans. And then, of course, the smallest letter of, y- of Yod and the story of, of Solomon. So hopefully that helps a little bit what Jesus is saying, because as you read along, he's not telling us to go get rid of the Old Testament. And I think part of it is so important to go back and know all those commands. It doesn't mean to rigidly, uh, to rigidly hold on to them, but to understand their meaning and what God's intentions are build principles off of that that move us towards the future. And so many of the old so many of the Old Testament commandments that we're not trying to rigidly hold, they help explain our world and what's unfolding in front of us all the time. It would be helpful the more we study Torah to especially it's helpful to understand the the uh, New Testament. So okay, next week we're going to look at a principle called measure for measure. So on your readings assignment Make sure you read all the other texts because you want to see where measure and measure for measure shows up in every book, almost every chapter of the Bible. So you want to make sure you read those other ones to get the gist of what's being said. Okay, and we'll do measure for measure. Measure for measure is a good lesson when we see injustice in the world to remind us that God is just.